Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping quit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks of BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a big thank you to my last guest, Andrew D. Bernstein. What an incredible guest, and the episode was incredibly popular. If you have not heard our in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 196, and we have a great episode lined up for you today. We have on the show Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson, these two former Navy officers, one a former submariner, the other a surgeon fighter pilot, and then embedded with a Navy SEAL team, have teamed up to become a writing juggernaut with such best-selling books such as the Tier 1 series, Sons of Valor, and more. They are now entering the world of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan with a new book, Act of Defiance. Brian and Jeff are two incredibly great guests, and it's always a pleasure to have not only veterans on the show, but sailors. So let's get them out here. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show, calling in today from Kansas City and Tampa, Florida, Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson. Brian and Jeff, welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by the two of you today? Uh, better than it is for you, I hear. <laughs> We're actually I have a beautiful cool. day. Sun is setting right now. All right. So with the pandemic now winding down, how was it for both of you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Um, you know, it, it's, it's a blessing to be a writer during that crazy time, right? I mean... Uh, we we were working uh, in our underwear on our on our porches before. Hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> so yeah, you know, our we're just lucky that our industry was relatively you know unaffected at least our side of it because uh, we were we were still just writing every day. But uh, yeah, it was it was a tough time, man. Hmm. Having the kids home didn't help. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, in in reflecting on it, and it's funny because I was talking about it with you know with family this weekend. 
it's interesting that, you know, it was kind of a time where everybody buckled down and, you know, because of, you know, isolating and, and less activity, you know, the family sort of bonded and, and that was a good family time for us. But as far as like, you know, sort of relationships with friends and other families and relatives, it's interesting. I feel like we're all playing catch up on that right now. And, you know, we're putting a lot of effort into trying to rekindle some of those things, some of those relationships with folks that, you know, we, we let dwindle. And it's interesting because, you know, two, two, two and a half, three years have gone by in, in those people's lives. And now you feel like, wow, I, I really missed out on, on some big things that happened in, in their lives. And so, yeah, but I think that's my take on it. Hmm. I have so, the advantage of having no friends. So Brian's, <laughs> Brian's my only friend. So I did not share that experience whatsoever. Fair enough. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you both born? What was it like to grow up there? And Brian, we will start with you. <laughs> I was born in middle America. And, you know, it's what's fun about my journey is I sort of left middle America and I went out, I sort of struck out and went out to, to, to experience and travel the world. And so one of the ways that I did that was by joining the Navy and that allowed me to travel. I've, I've now been to five different continents. And um, after the Navy, I went to business school and, and lived in New York. And, and that was uh, different from the Midwest. And now, you know, I've sort of come full circle back home to uh, Kansas City. And so, you know, this idea that you want to strike out, sort of see things for yourself, check to see if all the stuff your parents were telling you about the world is true or not, right? You got to, you got to, trust, but verify. So this is where the trust, but verify approach that I took. And I, I spent a long time away, but eventually, you know, when it was time to think about starting my own family, you know, that place that you have roots and that area that you grow up, it really, it, in your brain, I think it burns this idea that that's home. And so for me to come home, um, felt right. And, and now, you know, my kids are going through that time where, you know, they're growing up and my daughter soon will be venturing off on, on her own. And she's already making plenty of noise about the fact that, well, I'm, I'm for college, I'm going away. I want to try somewhere new. So, you know, she at least inherited that, that from me. Yeah. Mine's a little, a little uh, more circuitous because of, you know, the, my background is one shared by my dad. So I was born in a, on an air force base in, in the Northeast Pease air force base spent actually the, the majority of my childhood in Berlin, Germany during the height of the cold war. So from age six to uh, almost 13, I was in West Berlin. I can remember going through Checkpoint Charlie. I can remember walking along the Berlin Wall and seeing the East German border guards checking out my mom and all that kind of stuff. And then we ended up in um, in middle school. We ended up in Virginia in uh, the Tidewater area. I guess to me, that sort of felt like home because I you know, went to high school there. I went to college there. Virginia is, is home for my Navy career. Uh, as well. So, but, but I didn't have that route that I think Brian feels. And so for us ending up in Tampa, I think it's harder for my wife. She's like, Oh, you know, we're not near family. We're not near friends. I'm like, my whole life's been like that. I'm <laughs> moving from place to place. So for me, it wasn't a, as big a deal, but we, we love it here. And uh, you know, we're, like I said, I, Brian's my only friend. So it's a little easier for me than maybe my wife, but <laughs> I also got to see a good bit of the world while I was in the Navy, uh, not Pearl Harbor and the beauty, beautiful Hawaii like Brian, but uh, some deserts and some <laughs> shitty, shitty mountains where people shoot <laughs> stuff yeah. like that. The good stuff. The good stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> what attracted you both to the United States Navy? 
Well, my story was sort of a funny one. I remember when I was applying to college, I sort of took this approach of, well, I'm going to apply to all the best schools that I think I could possibly get into. And when I got my, you know, acceptance and rejection letters back and I was going through them, I sat down with my father and I said, okay, well, I think I'd like to go to Vanderbilt. And he's like, congratulations, son. That's fantastic. I just have one question for you. And I said, what's that, dad? He's like, how are you going to pay for it? (laughs) And I said, "Uh, I thought you were going to pay for it. (laughs) He said, no, no, I'm not not paying for Vanderbilt. So, you know, he had a deal. He would pay for a state university for all four years of college. And if I wanted to exceed that, um, that budget and that I had to find a way to do that. And so, you know, being a, uh, uh, bullheaded young man. I said, okay, well, this is, I've made my decisions this is where I'm going to go. So I got to pay for it. So I went out and solicited scholarships and realized that there are very few full ride scholarships. And the Navy happened to offer one called the ROTC uh, scholarship. So I applied and I, I won that scholarship. I had no uh, Naval service in, in my family history. So this was something me again, striking out on my own, doing my own thing. Um, and when I got the scholarship, uh, they said uh, Vanderbilt's on the list, so that set my my strategy in motion, and and the rest is history. So again, it's starting. To, I'm starting to trying to figure out why Brian and I are friends, because again, my story is completely different. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I come I come from a family of service. Service was not not bred into me intentionally, but just through the role models of my family. My dad uh, served in the, in the military. And, uh, after that we later found served in some other parts of the federal government. And I just, service was always part of my, my DNA, uh, uncles and everybody, grandparents. And so I joined the Navy. I first joined the fire department was serving in my community and wanted to serve at a greater level. And I applied for the Navy to be a, come a fighter pilot and, uh, got, got selected for that. And, uh, early on in the course of that I was in a motorcycle accident and, this was, I'm older than I look, so, or maybe not, but this was 86 with the Graham Rudman cuts. And so they were like, oh, sweet. He got hurt. Hey, good news, bad news. Good news is you can stay in the Navy. Bad news is you don't get to be a pilot. So what would you like to do? And I said, no, thanks. So I wound up actually in another part of the federal government uh, doing some some other things for a few years, which was um, interesting and violent. And uh, as a result of that, I decided I wanted to live a life of peace. So I went and applied to medical school, got accepted. And while I was in medical school, I decided I still wanted to serve. So I was going to be a naval reservist. So I'll be like a weekend warrior. I'll serve in the reserves. It's going to be awesome. But I'm going to be an academic doctor and write papers and do research. And uh, and that worked out great for me until just before I finished my uh, vascular surgery fellowship when a bunch of assholes crashed some planes into the towers and like everybody else in America, it pissed me off. So I got with my detailer and told him I wanted to go back on active duty. And he said, well, I will get you mobilized. I was like, no, I don't think you're following me. I don't want to be a mobilized reservist. I have a regular commission. I want to go back on active duty. So I did. I deployed with the Marines first as a Frist team surgeon, if you're familiar with that term. And while I was downrange, I ran into some uh, some folks from my spooky past. And they said, you know where you should be working. And so uh, I wound up uh, connecting with some people from uh, the JSOC SEAL team and got recruited to go work there and spent the next few years doing that and then a uh, joint task force and never quite recovered from falling down that bunny hole, I guess. <laughs> and so now Brian and I write books about it. 
All right. So you both took different paths. One of you was a submariner. The other one, a surgeon. Brian, we'll talk with you. Talk about your submarine career. You know, the submarine is is a fascinating machine. If you think about a submarine, it's it's probably the most technologically advanced piece of machinery that humans have ever created. I mean, it has a nuclear, it's powered by a nuclear reactor. It drives around underwater at, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of pounds per square inch of external pressure. It has to recirculate its own air. It has to, you know, process all the water that you drink. And oh, by the way, you can't see where you're going. <laughs> so you're navigating blind in the dark. And so the thing that humans actually made this thing and, and people live on it and drive it around, it is sort of crazy. And so I think, you know, when, when you're younger, you naively assume that if somebody makes something or somebody tells you something is safe or that it works, that, that it does, because that's, you know, sort of America, right? Like we don't, we don't see each other. We would, we would never, we would never say anything that that's not true. But fortunately in the case of a submarine, you know, they hired some really, really smart engineers and they designed this thing to a 3x design factor so that they could account for you know all the types of problems that trying to live and operate underwater entails and so when you get on this thing and you submerge and you start hearing the hull which is made out of hy80 high tensile strength steel creaking under the pressure you know the you know and, and people are looking around and you're thinking, really? Did I, is this was this a very good idea? Should should I be down here? You know, did somebody hoodwink me? You know, is this is this what I signed up for? Um, and you have to come to grips with the fact that you know there's a lot of trust. So you're trusting the engineers and the designers that made the submarine, but you're also trusting the crew members, your fellow crew members, uh, which are all fallible human beings that are relying on their instincts and their training and their smarts to make sure that they can operate this machine that, to be quite honest, like, nobody understands everything that's happening on the submarine. There's no one person on the submarine that understands how every single system works and the interconnectivity of it and can manage every single casualty or problem that could happen. You know, It is a collective experience and a collective knowledge that allows this thing to function. And it's all based on you know the courage and leadership of the command staff and the people that are serving. So when you when you become a submariner and you say I'm a submariner and you you're you're striving for these dolphins that you're going to pin onto your chest what you're basically saying is that I trust you know you and you and you and you with my life because some point during the the day I have to sleep and same with everybody else. And so that's sort of the fascinating thing about it is that, you know, at any minute of the day, uh, you know, something bad, something terrible could happen that could result in the, the loss of the ship and the loss of the, all the souls on board. And, and you're putting your faith in the system and your faith in your fellow submariners to, to take care of you. Hmm. That's fantastic. That's, that's very well said. You know, it's funny. I, when I was in the Navy, I had, uh, you were on a fast attack. Am I correct? Correct. I had two friends of mine who I went to boot camp with were on boomers. And they mm -hmm. said it was one of the greatest experiences of their lives. Yeah. Greatest, greatest and worst, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when you go through that sort of shared experience, you know, especially if you 
if you re-enlist or you re-up or you look at it with a positive attitude, you'll, you cannot come away with it without some sort of appreciation for your fellow human and your, your, and the Navy and feel a very strong sense of pride, um, you know, for being part of that crew. Jeff, now, based on what you do, can you give us kind of a broad idea of conducting combat operations with a SEAL team? Yeah, I, I for sure I will. Do you, do you mind if I chime in on Brian first? Because he never Please. tells the most interesting part of his story. Go and for he, it. He gets mad at me when I do this. But, you know, so like I've been a vascular surgeon. I've been a jet pilot. I've done all these things. You'd think I'm the smart guy on the team. I'm not. I'm not the smart guy on the team. So here's the here's the story behind Brian Andrews that no one ever gets to hear. Brian was an ROTC candidate at Vanderbilt, as you know. Uh, he already said that. But what he didn't say was he was a psychology major because what Brian initially intended to do was go into the intelligence field. So he thought, oh, psychology, that'll work great. So he majors in psychology, gets to his senior year. They meet with their detailer and he said, they say, what do you want to do? And he goes, I want to go into intelligence. They said, oh, forgot to tell you, everything that's restricted line is closed. The only thing you can do is unrestricted lines. You can be a submariner, you can be a Navy SEAL, you can be a pilot, or you can be a surface warfare officer. What do you want to do? And he said, oh, well, I want to be a submarine officer then. And they said, well, yeah, we're saying that broadly. You can't be a submarine officer because you're not a nuclear engineer. You get that, right, Brian? You can't be that. So between the other three, and he goes, well, why can't I be a submariner? And they said, because you can't. You can't you're not a nuclear engineer. And the guy says, you like you literally wouldn't even be able to pass the test. And Brian goes, oh, there's a test? Like, yeah, there's a test. He goes, so if I pass the test, I could be a submariner? He goes, yeah, dude. You pass the test, you could be a submariner. So Brian, during the first semester of his senior year, buys a stack of books on nuclear engineering as tall as my eight-year-old and blows off all of his other classes and de de just devours these books on his own in his free time and scores like, I don't know, top 10% of the testing class against nuclear engineers. And damn if they didn't let him become a submariner. So when we say on interviews, yeah, Brian's a, a nuclear engineer, he is, but he clepped it. Who cleps in to become <laughs> a nuclear engineer? It's like, I'm just going to clep undergraduate. How's that work? Like insane. So yeah, so he's the brains in the outfit. Isn't nuke school down in Charleston? It is now. I happen to be one of the last classes to go through in Orlando, but yes. Mm. Okay. Crazy. Just crazy. Mm. Um, anyway, so me. So yeah, I had the, the greatest honor, privilege, and and most of the pain of my life revolves around having having served with some of the greatest human beings and most elite warriors on earth. And serving in the in the capacity that I did was very strange because I wasn't like a DMO. I wasn't like the doc assigned to the unit. I was recruited to go into this unit to provide a, a, a real world skill that was needed because at the time, at the you know, early in the global war on terror. We had JSOC level units, special mission units were going into denied areas and places they weren't supposed to be. And we'll leave it at that. But the idea was that how can we take care of these guys if they get hurt in a denied area where it might be a day or two before we can reasonably extract somebody? And so based on a conversation I had on a rooftop in Iraq on my first tour in Iraq when I ran into some old friends, we had all these great ideas of what you could really do. You know, what can you really do medically? What can you really do surgically? Not what you do in a hospital with like 5,000 people behind you and millions of dollars of equipment. What could you really do 
if you had no choice in the sock with just what you could carry on your back. So when they recruited me to come in to the unit, it was with that in mind. They were like, Hey, remember that bullshit you had on, on that rooftop? You think you could really do that? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I probably. So what we did was we designed a a package, a modular package that we could take on a, on a uh, mission with anywhere from four guys to say 12 guys with me and one 18 Delta uh, special operations combat medic as the only medical providers carrying just what we could in our backpacks. And the charter was be able to provide life-saving surgery to keep up to two people alive for up to 48 hours. And so we spent a better part of a year developing this at the same time that I went through a lot of training that I was completely unprepared for. Um, I can, my experience in, um, in the SEAL team I deployed with was sort of like if you went sort of Brian's experience, I guess, like going to graduate school without ever going to college, maybe not graduating from high school. I was totally unprepared for all the training that they put me through, but somehow uh, because of the great people I worked with, I made it through and uh, we were able to deploy this package and um, do it in a real world environment. And it was incredible. But the most insane part of the, the experiences I had were the people that I worked with. And, and again, to, you know, not to, not to just always come back to the books, but the reason we write the books we do and the way we do them is because of those people that we've served with. And uh, in the case of the tier one series or sons of Valor series, me in particular, the thing that was the most striking about the men uh, and women, there's uh, not women seals that uh, I'm aware of yet, but there are plenty of women in special operations and direct action support roles. The people that I deployed with, what's the most striking about them, Derek, is not how extraordinary, how ordinary they are. Like you watch the movies and you see, you know, the the great big superhero Navy SEAL guy. I never met any of those guys. I have one friend who, was, who looked a little like that, I guess. But by and large, you run into these guys at Lowe's or at the grocery store, you wouldn't look across and say, that's a Navy SEAL. You'd just be like, yeah, that's a dude. These are ordinary people who have the most extraordinary drive to do something important for their country, but more importantly for their teammates and for the man beside them. The highlight of his life is when he's not downrange and he gets to go to his kids' little league game. You know, we watch shows like CBS SEAL Team, which gets the action right. I will give them that. The combat scenes are pretty well done. But the rest of it is horseshit. Like, because... These guys, you know, they everybody's got an alcohol problem and a divorce and the kids hate them. And I don't know those people. I'm not saying there wasn't a, a divorce rate that was significant in our community. There was. But by and large, the people at this unit, these were guys that took the garbage down to the curb and, you know, got a phone call when we were in garrison and they, hey, can you pick up milk? And they got milk and eggs on the way home. They, that's what I love about them the most, what you're describing, you know, shooting pool with a guy and realizing, this dude could be, you know, whatever. He could be an accountant. He could be anything. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't strike me as this cold, steely-eyed killer. No. But you put him outside the wire down range, and it's a whole different thing. There's There are guys that I worked with. I've, I've already said there are guys that, you know, you wouldn't say, oh, that's a Navy SEAL. There are guys that I deployed with, and I'm like, I still can't believe they were Navy SEAL. <laughs> because <laughs> the one guy, and we won't we'll use any names, obviously, but there's this one guy that, in garrison, dude, inside the wire, he bitched and moaned and complained and whined. And he wasn't, he never wanted to do PT. And you're like, how is this guy not just a Navy SEAL, but like he's like the elite 5% of all Navy SEALs? He's at that unit, right? 
But the thing that makes them all the same is the moment they step outside that wire, that dude was badass at everything he did. He had his particular specialty, uh, which was both medicine and comms. And he was, you would definitely feel comfortable putting your life in his hands, but sit at chow hall and at breakfast, you'd be like, I don't even want to go to the grocery store with you. It's uh, someone's going <laughs> to kick her out. Like it, it, it's so funny how ordinary they are when they're not in their, you know, right. in their combat zone. It's, it's an amazing experience. It was the most awe-inspiring thing that I've ever experienced to be a, a part of that unit, to be a part of that brotherhood. Um, you know, we lost a lot of a lot of good friends during that time, and that's and that's horrible. But it doesn't diminish the honor that I feel for having served beside them. Uh, it's the most incredible group of people I've ever known. Right. What led you both to leave the Navy? Well, for me, um, you know, I had an opportunity. I wanted to, I knew that eventually I wanted to go into business. And so I applied to a number of business schools and I got a fellowship that was just impossible to say no to. So originally I wasn't sure, do I want to extend? Do I want to go on a short tour? Um, you know how the detailing process works. There's no guarantees. You could, the detailer could tell you that, yes, you're slotted for, you know, Penn, you're going to, you're going to Penn for the ROTC and you're going to be a lieutenant there. And then next thing you know, you're in Diego Garcia and you're like, what happened? <laughs> what have, what you promised me, you know, so he's prom the detailers are promising everybody something, but, um, and there's always bills that nobody wants, but, um, you know, if you have an opportunity that you can't say no to, I, I would have stayed in, um, but I just had this great opportunity with the fellowship to go to business school on a full ride. And I just could not walk away from that. And so, um, that was the thing that, that made me depart the Navy. But uh, as I tell everyone uh, and, my, and my own daughters, um, you know, if I could do it over again, I definitely would. And I would encourage anyone to serve. I'm a big believer in service. Jeff talked about service and family. I said that in my family that I was the first to serve in the U.S. military. Um, and I think, you know, if you are an American, um, you are and you're born here, you, you, you inherit the right to call yourself an American citizen. But Remember that right that you get for free uh, was not free. You know that that right comes from the sacrifice and service of hundreds of thousands of people before you who dedicated their time and in some cases their lives for your freedom and your privilege. And so I think um, I wish we had a National Service Corps, whether you serve in the military or the Peace Corps or the Red Cross, I think service should be a component uh, of everyone. Uh, in this country who calls themselves a citizen because um, not only should we give back through our taxes, we should give back through our, our time and, and our expertise and ourselves. And, and through that service, I think you gain a greater appreciation of what it means to be an American and also the sacrifices of those others that, that I mentioned before. So for me, I would recommend uh, military service to everyone. Uh, even if you do one tour, uh, that's enough. You're going to learn. You're going to become a better person. You're going to understand hardship and leadership and sacrifice. And I think uh, commitment. Do it kind of like the Israelis do it. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny you say that about the citizenship is uh, I was, I moved to the United States when I was a young man and I got my citizenship when I was in the Navy. And uh, it took the, my government, my Senator had to pull a lot of strings because I couldn't get my, my security clearance. Uh, and it, it was right after the 9-11. It was during the 9-11 deployment when it happened. Mm. 
And so um, Senator uh, Steve Largent, remember Steve Largent, the Seahawks football player. I do remember. Yeah. Uh, he pulled the strings and got me my citizenship, uh, what have you. And I got it back when I got back off 9-11. I got sworn in, you know, the pledge and everything like that. Took the oath and uh, got my citizenship and got became a, you know, what have you. And then um, a few months later, President Bush signed an executive order saying that if you serve X number of years, you automatically become a citizen anyway. <laughs> I'm like, you bastard. <laughs> so, all that all that work I went through. And it was like, if I just waited a few more months. So, yeah. Anyway, Jeff. But you're... you had Steve Largent go to bat for you, right? That is true. Steve Largent and, and, did go to bat for me. And there's some inspiration in that story in the fact that, you know, he recognized that, you know, your service maybe should promote your citizenship, right? So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah that's a great story. Jeff, what was your reason? Uh, yeah, mine is uh, mine is a little bit different. Um, I I would I like to tell people that the the Navy screwed up and saved my life. So um, at the time that I uh, separated from the Navy, uh, I was pretty beat up. It was um, about nine months after extortion one seven. I'd lost a lot of very close friends, uh, but was still serving. And uh, the Navy had this great idea that they were going to deploy me as some sort of doctor on the white side of the Navy after all of these years had invested into what I was doing. And the idea of going downrange at some naval hospital thing out without the brotherhood, without the team, just was disgusting and inconceivable to me. And so uh, I, I elected to uh, separate. So I, I separated at 14 years. Um, and I will tell you that that probably saved my marriage. It probably saved my kids, uh, who are thriving now. And it probably saved me. I, you know, I, I've struggled for years with a lot of things from my time in service, you know, physically, as well as, as psychologically. And I'm not sure another couple of deployments with that group would have been the best thing for me or my family. So I would have given the opportunity to deploy with them again. I would have that opportunity wasn't given to me and it forced my hand and uh, thank God it did because life worked out great. I met Brian, we're selling tons of books and TV shows and movies and I'm with my kids all day. So uh, yeah, worked out great. That was my next question is how did you two meet? He stalked me like, like yeah. look at him. Yeah. <laughs> we met at a writer's conference. We were, we never knew each other in the service. We were both writing independently at the time. I had a couple books out. He had a couple books out, and we met at uh, one of the biggest uh, conferences for our genre. It's called Thriller Fest. It's part of International Thriller Writers. They have a meeting every for a few days every summer in New York, uh, and all the agents are there, and all the editors are there, and the writers are there. Uh, and we were debut authors, right? In the same were we? In, were in the yeah, same no, class? we were. We were in the same yeah. class. So we were say we were debut authors. Uh, my our, we had a book come out. Both of us, our first book had come out the year before. Um, we both had another book about to come out. So we met there. And I, I will tell you, um, he did stalk me. But that aside, maybe I actually stalked him because, you know, at that time in my life, the idea of being in a social setting with hundreds and hundreds of people that I didn't know that I wasn't going to be able to relate to was horrific to me. And my wife will tell you, we sat in our hotel room flipping through the bulletin for the conference 
And I'm like circling people whose bio said they'd been in the military thinking, okay, there might be four or five people that I can talk to. There actually a lot was a lot more than I expected. But one of them was this, was this cat named Brian Andrews, who's a Navy guy. He's like, okay. So I'm like memorizing their faces. We go down to the cocktail party on the opening night. And um, sure enough, as you'd expect, you know, he's a submariner sitting off in the corner by himself, you know, a little tear running down his cheek because of the loneliness uh, was Brian Andrews. And I was like, you know, poor submariner. I should go. I should go over and talk to him. So I did. And it turned out we had tons in common beyond the Navy. Our, we're both very family focused guys. Uh, love our wives, love, love our love our kids. And we became, I, I don't know, we became fast friends instantly, right? Yeah. And, and, and the great thing about the Thriller Fest conference is it's an annual conference and a lot of the people who come really enjoy it. There's a great fraternity there. And so we, we come back every year and I'd come back and he'd be the first guy I'd seek out opening night cocktail party. I know he'd be there. So I'd, I'd find him and we'd catch up and reconnect. And, and so I think it was a couple years after our debut, uh, maybe two years, I had just finished writing my second book. He had finished writing his third. I was getting ready. To, I was thinking about what my next project was going to be. And, you know, this is one of those things that we, we stand interviews and people think it's, it's hokey or maybe we, we construct it for interviews, but the, the fact of the matter is it's, it's absolutely true, which is that, you know, in the military, um, you know, everything is a team effort and everything is co collaboration. And like I talked about before, there's trust and there's uh, brotherhood. And so, you know, Jeff had had that background. I'd had that background. And so I, you know, writing is a lonely man's business. You're sitting in your, in your office or your bedroom or on your sofa or wherever it is that you can find time to steal a few minutes to write and you're doing it by yourself. And, you know, when you try to explain to somebody what you're working on, they haven't been on that journey with you. And so, you know, they listen and they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, they don't know the characters. They don't really know what you've gone through. They don't know all the things that you've figured out to make this plot better. And um, so, you know, it's kind of a solitary thing and, and only another writer can really empathize and understand what, a writer's journey is like. And so for me, uh, it, it happened just as a, like a, literally as an epiphany. I was like, you know, it'd be cool. Uh, we should do a submarine and seals book. Cause I did subs and you were with seals. So why don't we do a military thriller with these two communities? It could be very, very cool. And he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't see how that would really work, you know, cause writing, you know, how do two people write a book? And I said, well, I, I don't know, but I'm sure we could figure it out. We'll collaborate. We'll, I don't know, we'll come up with some system to collaborate on this. And um, so I pitched him this idea and he's like, okay, well, that sounds interesting. I still don't think this will work. And uh, I'm not, I'm not signing on to this cockamamie scheme, but um, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll give it a try. You know, if, if you need some help with this book, I'll, I'll help. We can see if we can make this work. And um we started, I don't know how long, how many chapters we wrote, Jeff, maybe like five or something like that. Well, right? I think you had set that as a deadline, right? Like, so Brian, his, I actually said no three times and like, he's, <laughs> he's being kind. My first time I was like, oh, hell no. Like, I, what, <laughs> how does that work? Like you write the nouns, I write the verbs. What are you talking about, bro? Um, but his, you, he pulled his psychology bag of tricks out and he said, yes. he said, here's what we'll do. At this point, you have to understand we had brainstorm. I was like going to just help him. Right. And uh, as a friend, and we brainstormed this this thing out and the story. This is the first book in the Tier One series, and yeah. the story got really good. And I'm like, oh man, this is a great story. And so that's when he pulled his psychology tricks out. He said, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's start to write it. 
we'll write five chapters. And if it's working, we'll keep going. And if it's not, you can have the story. No hard feelings. Because I can't write the SEAL part. And it's really SEAL-centric. So let's just try it. And so I went into this thing fully manipulated, thinking, I just got this great story, dude. This is going to be <laughs> awesome. But um, I think five was the number you had set. But to be honest with you, Derek, we never stopped. There wasn't. We didn't like write five chapters and go, what do you think? Yeah. We just started writing and it got so much momentum. Four months later, the book was done. 400 and however many pages and the book was completely done. And that was 25 books ago. <laughs> we just, we never had the conversation again. So and the, the funny thing is, you know, the original pitch I think I made was seals and subs and we never, <laughs> we never did that until book. now. Yeah. We can't talk and about And then that. what happened was the irony, irony, the irony of holding back on the submarine warfare component is that we never put one in. And Jeff was always like, dude, we got to get a sub in. I was like, yeah, and then fight the right opportunity, like right story, right plot to put the sub in. And it wasn't that I didn't want to. It's just, you know, we had this great character with John Dempsey and he was in this task force and all this stuff. And there's never really a place to put in a <laughs> submarine and a submarine crew and what they were doing. And then along comes a guy named Tom Colgan. He's like, you know, you guys write some pretty good books. And uh, this dude named Mark Cameron is going to be retiring and he's writing the Jack Ryan series. Was that something you guys might be interested in taking over, like the Tom Clancy, you know, Jack Ryan series? And we were like, no, we had no interest. And that was the end of the story. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I actually didn't have any interest until. So, I mean, obviously, we're writing we're writing those books now. But right. uh, at first, I was like, so Blackstone had taken off. We had three series and the potential for a fourth. In like, we're writing a book every three months, dude. Like, I'm like, and Brian's like, we have to do it. I'm like, dude. Like, I get where you're coming from, but bro, who, when, like, when will we write it? I don't think we should do it. I don't think we should do it. He said, well, let's at least take the call. So we get on the call with Tom and he says, oh, by the way, your first book would drop on the 40th anniversary for the hunt for the red October. And so we listen to him, we get off the phone and like, I click off and my phone rings instantly. Yeah. And it's like, dude, we're doing it. We're writing a submarine book for the 40th anniversary of the hundred time. So we called, we called Blackstone and they were awesome. They're like, dude, whatever you need to do, we'll shift things around. We'll make it work. And so now we're writing the Clancy book uh, that our first book comes out on the 40th anniversary of hunt for the red October next May. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's funny how things work. Yeah, you're right. We talked about subs. We had that little scene in uh in book six or book five yeah but it wasn't we'll a submarine crew right it was just our dudes yeah. on a sub and swimming off i was going to bring up jack ryan a little bit so i'll just skip ahead to that right now yeah. i'll just basically say you know it's how daunting and how much pressure do you feel when you're given the keys to the kingdom of such a storied <laughs> franchise uh, i think you couldn't do it if you didn't have tom colgan like so tom has become a very good friend but he, and he's amazing. Obviously, he's a, a renowned editor. But here's the best thing about Tom and, and everyone that works for him, Don Bentley, Josh Hood, Mark Cameron, uh, Mark Graney, everyone that's ever written for him will probably tell you the same story. But you you walk in with this huge pressure, like you're saying, like it's mm -hmm. I'm carrying the Clancy estate on my back. But when we brought it up and we'd actually written one estate book for him before in the W.E.B. Griffin series called Rogue Asset. And he said the same thing to us. He said that he's like, look, do not go into this trying to write a Tom Clancy book because you're not Tom Clancy. But remember, he couldn't write a tier one book either. 
What you need to do, we want you to come here and write the best Andrews and Wilson book you can in the Clancy universe. And that was, it, it's hard to describe how liberating that was. Like that took all that pressure off. Like, okay, he's a fan of our work. He believes in our work. If we apply that to the work and understand the universe and honor the characters and stuff, it'll work out. Uh, and I got to tell you, I think, I, you know, I'm not a braggart, but I think the book we created in that in that franchise is one of the best books we've ever written. I mean, I because we're both fans like Brian will tell you, like he went into the submarine force as his second choice, obviously. But uh, but it was because of Hunt for the Red October. He's like, well, I want to do that. Right. Yeah. I've seen that movie. I've read that book. I read those books growing up. It was a big influence on me. So we knew the universe pretty well. And that helped, I think. I have a first edition of that book. Do you? That's I, awesome. I, I got it by accident too. It was I found it at a used bookstore and I just happened to have a first edition in beautiful, pristine condition. And you're like, oh. thank you very much. I'll take that. Guess how much I paid for it? Five bucks. 20 bucks. You're killing me. I swear to God. It's worth hundreds. Has the has the dust cover and everything. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I think when you think about this franchise and, and the book that started all Hunt for October, it was a sea change, right? In the industry. I mean, nobody had written a book like this. And you know, Ronald Reagan, you know, he's carrying this book around thinking about, man, like, what if this is real? You know, and so for us to be able to really step into the most iconic sort of groundbreaking character of military thriller history is is a huge honor. And and like Jeff said, you know, for us, um, when Tom's one of Tom's comments is, you know, don't try to ape the master because you're going to fail. And that resonated with me because you know what? People don't like insincerity. So if we're trying to write just like Tom Colton, people are like, these guys are trying to write like, you know, uh, I'm sorry, Tom Clancy misspoke. These guys are trying to write like Tom Clancy and they're failing. It's, it doesn't sound like Tom Clancy. You know, that's not who we are. We can't, we can't replicate what he did. What we can do is just write the best damn book that we can write in our voice. And so for me, and this could be naivety because we still could get terrible reviews. <laughs> I don't know what they're going to say. But I do know that <laughs> what I do know is that if we tried to copy his voice and his technique, we would fall short. Right. So the best that we can do is say, you know what? Tom Clancy is a great iconic author and he wrote his way. And what we're going to do is try to honor these characters and, you know, try to incorporate the ethos of Hunt for Red October into our novel. And so when you see Act of Defiance on the shelves, and we'll send you a copy, when you get a copy of Act of Defiance, Derek, and you're reading it, well, the experience that we want you to have is the same experience you had, hopefully, when you watched Top Gun Maverick, which is, you know what? This re reminds me of when I watched Top Gun, you know, 40 years ago in the 80s when it came out. And I have that same great feeling because... I've got Jack Ryan. I've got a Russian submarine that's put to sea with some mystery. We don't know what it's going to do. And they've got the Ryan's got to figure out what's going on. If you can walk away with that same feeling that this feels like Top Gun, but it's Top Gun Maverick. So it's updated for the 21st century with current geopolitics and current technology. Uh, and you're like, wow, that was a really fun ride. That's our goal. 
how are you involving you know the real world political aspects of like you know Russia China in your novels? We've always taken that pretty seriously, and um, it's not that much work because we're both so fascinated still by the geopolitics, mm -hmm. and we stay connected to the communities we worked in. So you know we've been lucky more than we've been good. You know we had a book called Collateral uh, that was written a few years ago. Uh, and released a, a, about a year and a half before Russia invaded Ukraine. And in that book, we had Russia invade Ukraine during a false flag operation with the Wagner Group. And like it, it was like, we seemed prescient. It's like, wow, these guys predict. My white people <laughs> said, do you think Putin maybe read that book? Like, this might be your, <laughs> this might be your fault, right? So... I think when you're so fascinated mm -hmm. by that universe, it makes it it makes it easy to do because we're always asking those, you know, with our backgrounds, we're always asking those what if questions geopolitically. In terms of active defiance, uh, the credit for well, if it's a success, the credit goes to the Navy. If it's a failure, it's our fault. I'll say it that mm -hmm. way. But yeah. the like Navy that. was insanely supportive. So uh, through um, through a, a great young man. Uh, in in up in New York, who is part of the PAO team, uh, Nav Info East. He connected us to uh, East Coast Navy, and the CNO got gave permission for us to inter interface with Subland. We met this three star admiral. He gave us unfettered access to submarines. We met submarine officers and enlisted, and you know chiefs of the boat. And he flew us out to the Ford while she was at sea. And so Brian got his first. His first arrested landing in a cod. We got to meet the aviators and we got to go out to sea on the Indiana. We got to tour the Blackfish. We got to fly the F-18 simulator. The point is they made sure that we had the tools on hand to get it right and to do what we set out to do, which is to honor the Navy that we love so much and show people how incredible it is. If we didn't do that, that's on us. But the Navy made it as easy for us to do as we possibly could. So um, we definitely tried to put, you know, within the confines of OPSEC, uh, some real world technology, some real world uh, geopolitics into the story. Uh, so enjoy it. Uh, but still respecting we got brothers and sisters out there on the pointy tip. Right. So uh, the Navy was very good about helping us vet what could and could not be said. Mm -hmm. Last question about Jack Ryan, and we'll move on. And that is for both of you. Um, obviously, you, I'm sure you guys did a lot of research for the role of Jack Ryan. What do you guys think of John Krasinski's performance in that show? <laughs> uh, it was tremendous. I'll, I'll jump in yeah. first because I love I love the series. Uh, and Graham Roland, I, please, like that's that's the magic behind that show, right? Uh, was Graham, but John Krasinski's did a great job of showing a rebooted version of Jack Ryan, but it's not the Jack Ryan, right? And by intent, obviously, this is a rebooted, what if Jack Ryan was this action hero in modern day, um, whereas the stories we're writing are still the original Jack Ryan, who's now president, et cetera. In terms of what he brought to the screen, though, he, he, he aced it, especially season one and two, right? He aced that fish out of water, like Ludlum used to do, the guy who shouldn't make it but does because he's just so smart and so driven. He's an analyst who has to survive. Uh, I thought his performance was incredibly good. And with the material provided for him, it was unstoppable. Great show. Great show. Mm -hmm. 
And for all of you listeners out there, let, let me just set the stage and by saying that, you know, if you think about Jack Ryan, he might be the most iconic action hero of all time because he's been played by, you know, Alec Baldwin, Harrison Ford, Ben Affleck, uh, Chris Pine, John Krasinski. Is that it? Did I get them all? I think so. I think so. And if you think about what happens, you know, as this character, in, at least in film and television, you know, there is this desire to have a relevant actor, a younger actor play Ryan uh, in these in these stories that they're going to adapt from the book to television. And with Roland's series, the, the new Jack Ryan, obviously, you know, we're looking at a 40 year update. Krasinski crushed it. Like Jeff said, I thought he was great. Um, but in the book series, which we're taking over, remember that that has continuity. Okay, so Ryan has aged up until the present day. He's the president of the United States. So we're not writing a 20-year-old Ryan. We're writing a 60-year-old Ryan who's, you know, POTUS. And so what's fascinating about that is we get to inherit all the canon, the literary canon of the character. And so when you think about the stuff you've seen on TV and in the movies, remember that that's a deviation. In some case, they've taken liberties and deviated from his story. But if you're a, a book fan, if you've read this entire series, what you're going to get with our book is, you know, Ryan, present day, president of the United States, and how he would handle this new scenario that really sort of harkens back to when he was a young man. But now he's in a uh, the unenviable uh, position of, look, I'm trapped in the Oval Office. I wish I could get out there. I wish I could be with Jonesy and Mancuso and I could be on the Dallas and I could be the guy. But I'm stuck in this Oval Office, right? <laughs> so, you know, we're not going to do any spoilers, but we figured out a way around that and something pretty cool that we think the fans of the of the series and the family are going to be excited about. Very cool. Very cool. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. Hi, I'm Kay. And I'm Jay. We all know that a lot of us spend most of our waking hours at work. So naturally, the majority of our stories come from the many different characters and situations we run into at the workplace. Because of this, we bring you the Fuck My Work Life podcast. On this podcast, we will be sharing your stories from the workplace, no matter what they may be, so we can all laugh and commiserate together. Does someone at work have horrible habits? Crazy bosses that have no idea what they're doing? Hilarious blow-ups from coworkers? Even if you just need to rant, we want to hear it. Everything will be completely anonymous, so don't be afraid to spill your guts. That's right. All names of people and companies will not be disclosed, so send us your best. No story is too small. Email your stories to fmwlpod at gmail.com. That's fmwlpod at gmail.com. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your pods. For more fun content, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at FMWLPod. We can't wait to hear from you. Bye. Bye. Hello, Duval Nation. Derek Duval here. 
Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek DeBall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek Show. That's betterhelp.com slash Derek Show. Hey, this is Patrick Baker, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single, Sorrow, available on all major streaming platforms. And you can check my site out at patrickbakermusic.com. Don't leave my upper This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. Cause I'm all that I need to get by. Yes, I'm all that I want. I'll tell you why. We're This is Chad from The Shame. We're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find our stuff at theshameshop.com or listen to it on almost all the streaming services. We'll see you down the pub. Cheers. everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. 
Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 196 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with naval officers turned best-selling authors, Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson. You mentioned it very briefly, but tell my listeners about the Tier 1 series. Yeah, so Tier 1 sort of our tentpole series. That's the first the first book we wrote together was the first book in that series. Uh, Tier 1 is uh, our iconic character for that series is John Dempsey. And what we did in that series was we started with a what-if question, like everyone does in, in thrillers. What if the entire Tier 1 SEAL team were wiped out? as a result of leaked intelligence. So that's what happens in the first book. And John Dempsey is created from the ashes of that. He, is, he and all his teammates die. He's the sole survivor. And he's given the opportunity to change his identity, be buried next to his teammates in Arlington, and start to hunt down the people responsible. And so the Tier 1 series is really kind of a fun character study because we're taking this you know, very mature JSOC SEAL who's been serving for nearly two decades and we say, what if he suddenly was in a different environment? He leaves that black and white world of kicking in the door, getting the HVT, capture, kill, capture, kill, capture, kill. And now he has to exist in this gray world of task force operations where, you know, there's some moral ambiguity and there's some, you know, secrecy and all that. So the tier one series uh, is one we love. It's It's been very well received. The seventh book in the series, Dempsey, just came out last uh, February. We're literally, the reason we're so passionate about it right now is we're literally putting the final touches on book eight, which comes out next summer. What's fun about that series is it was so well received, we were able to spin off another series that's been equally as successful. The Sons of Valor series actually is a shared universe. So, uh, you know, we, we wiped out this entire SEAL team in, in book one. And so we always had in our minds, well, if that happened in real life, eventually they'd stand that team up. What would that look like to go from nothing to a functional JSOC SEAL team uh, with no one to help guide you. And so that's what we did in Sons of Valor with actually a character that uh, became very popular, Chunk Redman. Uh, he was a very minor character in the Tier 1 series. And so we gave him his own series, and now he's the commander of one of the squadrons in the in the JSOC SEAL team. So we're in love with Tier 1. Um, it's been optioned for television now, which is super exciting uh, for us and hopefully for our fans. But we don't see that one stopping ever. We got tons more ideas for that, for the tier one series. We say option, we talk about HBO or are we talking about Amazon? Well, we say we can't say where it's going to go yet, but um, yeah, it's, it's in development. So fair enough. We'll All right. Fair enough. All right. So when we're doing the research for the show, uh, it became abundantly clear to me that you would like to talk about one AI question. <laughs> so I threw an AI question in there for you. All right. So the question right, is wait. like this. Uh, I had Manuj Agagwal on my show, one of the world's leading experts in AI. He came on the show last month, and he was talking about the safe, rapid integration of AI into our society and how we can adapt and prosper from it. A question I have for you, gentlemen, is how dangerous can it be for the military to adapt AI into vital systems and take human decisions out of the equation? I mean, one of the things that we talk about um, when we think about AI and military integration is the speed of war. So, you know, um, 
it's a kinetic environment already. Special operations in particular is very kinetic. And then now you start to imagine that, okay, to process the information, everything that's happening, it's sort of pushing the boundaries of human capacity. So let's let's integrate an AI. Let's start giving feeding all this information into AI so the AI can process this information at superhuman speeds and start providing us with information uh, so we can make sound decisions. And, and you do that. And then the other side does that. And now suddenly you say, you know what? We really don't have time to sit around and debate these decisions that we need to make because uh, the other side, if they react faster than us, right, we're going to lose. So, so now you say there's this temptation to maybe uh, transfer kill decisions or tactical decisions to the AI, because why not? I mean, it's already got all the information. It's, it's processing, processing the information. It's It can make the decision in real time, and we've trained it. So let's just let it decide what to do. And I think that's the slippery slope that we worry about is that suddenly you're forfeiting kill decisions, command decisions, uh, strategy to the AI, and is the AI going to give it back, right? Like, is there an opportunity to turn that ship around once it's headed in that direction? I think, you know, the speed of war is going to dictate if both sides are doing that, uh, you're not going to be able to turn that ship around because the command staff's going to say, you know what, well, we can't do it because now we're going to lose, right? So um, that's, I think, our big concern is, you know, a lot of this AI is black box technology black box technology and how it works. A lot of the programmers don't understand how it works. You know, we've had neuropsychologists and neuroscientists studying the human brain for decades. We still don't understand how the human brain thinks. Uh, and the same is true with a lot of these, you know, cognitive neuromorphic computers that are using based on models of the human brain, neuromorphic meaning they're using like neurons and how these networks, neuro, neural networks work. We don't know how they work. So it really is a new, a strange new frontier. And Jeff uh, and I, you know, our position is we need to, to uh, proceed with caution. Yeah, I want to I want to follow up on that a little bit because two, two things I'll say. One, everything that Brian said, I agree with. And I will add to that, that I don't think anything he said is unique to military application. Right. So, you know, we wrote this book, Sandbox. It's about a sentient AI that goes crazy and murders its creator. And, you know, what are you going to do about that? Um, and it's a thriller and it's meant to entertain. It's meant to be exciting. But some people might look at that book and say, oh, you know, Jeff and Brian, they're they're terrified of AI. They're anti-AI. That Nothing could be further from the truth. Properly applied and properly managed and properly controlled, AI, I think, is, is a brilliant bright star in the future for mankind. Uh, outside of the military battle space, for example, I truly believe as a, as a former doctor, as a former surgeon, the cure for cancer is probably going to come from AI. I, I have this amazing uh, idea of picturing a vascular surgeon, which is what I did, in the operating room and something goes wrong. Can you imagine having the world's database of information in an earbud available to you to tell you, oh, you know what? here's what you should do, um, or here are your options. I, I just think that the application is incredible. And in the military space, you know, because of the flow of technology, there are task forces out there right now that without artificial intelligence could not possibly collate the amount of intelligence they're, 
they're gathering. So they're getting all this data, but it's useless data because it's a it's a fire hydrant trying to fill a thimble. Mm-hmm. But the AI can give it given proper parameters can prioritize and triage that data and provide the operators and analysts with what they need to make good decisions. So we're not anti-AI, but as Brian said, whether you're talking about a medical application, whether you're talking about a military application or an engineering application, the moment you give up your agency in the decisions as a human, that's the slippery slope he's talking about. Giving a, giving a, a machine intelligence kill authority and removing the human heart and soul and grief from that decision is a mistake. Allowing it to do an operation, allowing it to you know make a decision, a final decision about engineering rather than providing data for the humans, allowing it to write a book about the human experience having never been a human. Whatever your application is, that's sort of the line that I see as the line where we should cross, probably shouldn't cross, but if we ever were tempted, we really better think it through, not an individual, but as a species, we better think about what we give up in that situation. And the art right. book is about be- sentient AI, which is a little different than just applied machine intelligence. Uh, you know, a machine that becomes self-aware and self-learning and self-motivating is the scary thing, right? We don't know what to do with that. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with everything Brian said, and we better be talking about it because it's here. We can't. <laughs> we, we better make some decisions while we're allowed to still. Yeah, and I think that that last point you just made is an important one because I think the central premise of Sandbox, the the, the novel that we just released out in July, is that once the genie is out of the bottle, you really can't put it back in, right? So, you know, this summer we had the movie Oppenheimer, and it's talking about the development of the nuclear bomb, and you know, the decision whether to proceed with the Manhattan Project and develop this terrible weapon and how it's deployed. It, you know, it resonates with everyone. But remember, the the decision to drop the bomb ultimately falls on the people, right? So the bomb can't decide to execute on its own. We are, this is different. We are in a new frontier because now with artificial intelligence we're talking about is an entity that is able to make decisions for itself. And so once it becomes self-aware and once it has the ability to have intent and think about its own goal sets, right? We might not be able to control it anymore. It'd be like inventing a nuclear bomb that gets to decide on its own if it wants to go off or not. And I don't think anybody would say that that's okay. So this is different. It's okay to say this is different than any technology that has come before because now we're talking about technology that can think for itself. And so you know how you create it, the safeguards you implement from the beginning are going to be critically important because after it's self-aware, the initial goal sets, the programming, the safeguards are irrelevant. This next question is a little heavy. Uh, I ask every veteran who has come on my show this next question, and if it's all right, I'm going to ask it to both of you. What were your emotions when you saw the fall of Afghanistan? Uh, that was, um, you know, we actually spent a lot of time talking to our fellow veterans during that time. We did a lot of interviews during that time, some of them with Don Bentley and other friends. Um, I won't speak for other veterans, uh, but I think that it's a what I'm about to say is probably pretty common. I had a very difficult six or 12 months after the fall of Afghanistan, and it wasn't political because uh, we try to stay politically agnostic. And obviously I have my own, my own feelings about politics. It was just as a service member, I have 
friends who gave their lives in their last full measure of devotion on those battlegrounds. And the idea that we would walk away from that and leave it within weeks where Afghanistan was more under the control of the Taliban than the day we arrived. To me, I struggled because it sort of invalidated every deployment I made there, every friend I lost there. You know, I won't even get into the politics of when and timing. We can't stay in Afghanistan forever. But the way it was done uh, with the catastrophic loss and, and the loss of American lives, leaving people behind and handing over the keys to the people that we swore must be defeated in the for the world to survive, just was psychologically and emotionally extremely difficult for me and a lot of my close friends. So I lead a men's military ministry here in Tampa uh, for men that are dealing with, with issues. And I can tell you, it was a busy six to 12 months. There were a lot of people really struggling, people who had come to terms with their loss, who had to redefine what that sacrifice meant. So it was, it was difficult. Yeah, I think the exit from Afghanistan is sort of a cautionary tale. Um, for everything that we do in the military, in the sense that, you know, we'd known for a long time that we needed to figure out a way to get out. And I think these types of thorny problems, it's difficult for people in leadership positions because, you know, if you're on the campaign trail, you can say, you know, Obama said, I want to get out and Trump said, I want to get out. And it's like, once you become president, you're like, oh, you know, somebody reads you in on all the difficulties. It's not so easy, right? It's not so easy because there's the human toll and it's complicated. And so then I think, you know, and I'm not, like Jeff said, we're, we're politically agnostic, but I think, you know, Biden comes into office and he says, you know, this is, this is something that we need to figure out a way to do. And he probably had similar counsel that, you know, well, you know, it's not so easy. And, uh, you know, maybe... For, for whatever reason, the decision was, well, you know, we just got to do it. And so let's just pull the plug. And I think, you know, we, we have to always remember that, you know, all of our decisions have lasting consequences. And so just because the problem seems intractable or the problem's really, really hard, it doesn't necessarily mean that the solution is just to say, you know, we pull the plug. And so I, I think everyone knows every, you know, regardless of your political affiliation, I think there's plenty of lessons learned, you know, for, for how we can manage, you know, our exfil, our military exfiltration from whatever endeavor it is that we're doing. And, you know, be, like Jeff said, the reason that people had such heartburn, uh, because it's because of the human uh, component, the relationships that we build and all the, the Afghan uh, Afghanis that Afghans that contributed to you know risk their lives and and put their families on the line in order to support us and support our endeavors there. So my two cents is I I can't say that I could have managed the exfiltration properly or, or, or how we, how we got out. But what I can say is that I think maybe a little bit more measured, you know, proactive sort of let's bring everybody into this tent and figure out the way that we can do this successfully, that approach maybe should have been taken. Well said. Pierre de Coubertin said, the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your younger selves. What do you say to them? I'll go first. I would say to my younger self, sort of the same thing I'm saying to my older self, which is something I think we all need to be reminded of every day. 
which is that, you know, do not be afraid to fail and persistence is the antidote to failure, right? So um, if you're afraid of failure, you're never going to really take those chances um, that are going to lead you to some really amazing experiences. And, you know, I transitioned, and so did Jeff, we transitioned from stable careers where we had, you know, mid midlife stable careers uh, where we had guaranteed income uh, to take this journey of being an author where there's uh, a very high six, uh, very high potential for failure. And the, the chances of success and being able to pursue this dream and, and support our families financially, uh, it seemed, it seemed uh, like a crazy decision. Um, but I'm so glad that I took that that chance, right? And I'm so glad I was persistent and that Jeff was persistent and that he had the courage to forge forward because I'm very, very happy guy. Um, like, like he said, to open the podcast, I write with my best friend, I have a business with my best friend and I'm doing something that I love. And I think, you know, if you're, if you, whatever stage of life that you're in, if you feel that, you know what, I, it's too big of a risk to take a chance to do this thing that I want to do. I would, I would encourage you to reevaluate that decision and say, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen to me and sort of take that Rocky Balboa thing. If, you know, if I get knocked down, I'm just going to get back up again and I'm going to keep throwing punches because I honestly believe, and it's based on my own personal experience. And I know Jeff has changed careers many times and he's succeeded every time he has. And it's simply this, you know, persistent belief that you can do what you want to do if you put your mind to it, work hard enough. And I, I believe that with every fiber of my being. Yeah, the key to success is audacity, right? Yeah. Uh, if I were to tell, talk to my my younger self, I agree with Brian. There's not really anything I would change. I wouldn't say don't do this. Uh, even though I've had some experience that have scarred me, I, I wouldn't change anything that I've done. I think that the advice I would give so that I wouldn't have to spend so many years learning it is don't be afraid to just simply do the next right thing. You don't have to have it all figured out. Just always do the next right thing and it's gonna work out for you uh, if you're willing to do the hard work. Don't look for people to hand anything to you, but do the next right thing, do the hard work and it's gonna be okay. And then lastly, I would say, don't be afraid to pray. There's another, there's another source of inspiration. There's another source of light on that path. Invite it into your life and things will get easier. So what's next to the pair of you? Well, we're going to wake up in the morning and write some more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're very excited. Uh, Jeff had mentioned that tier one is an option for television. We also have a number of other projects under development for film and television. I think we're up to nearly a dozen uh, properties, pieces of IP that are in some phase of development. Um, some of them we're going to be writing as screenwriters. Uh, most of them were executive producers, uh, all of them, we provided the uh, at least the nugget of the core content of the story. Um, so, you know, hopefully in the next five years, you're going to see all kinds of different, really interesting Anders and Wilson um, IP on television or in film. And then in cool. the meantime, we're going to write a book every three months. That's awesome. Well, if you ever need a podcaster as a character, I, I, I volunteer as tribute. So. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Okay. So as we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question. Uh, what do you guys like to do for fun? How do you like to relax? You know, um, when you, when you go through some of the experiences that we've been through in military service, you learn to appreciate the simple things of, of your wife and family more than you would otherwise. 
So honestly, it sounds like something you say, so your wife will smile. But if I've got time and I'm not working with this clown trying to bang out the next book or talk to an editor or pitch something to a producer, I just want to be with my kids and my wife anywhere. So uh, we do a lot. This this last couple of years has been a blessing. We do a lot of traveling. We go on ski trips. We go to the beach. We go to the islands. We got to do a great dual Andrews and Wilson family trip to the Grand Canyon together. Uh, so it sounds a little... Uh, a little bit like I'm uh, placating my wife, but it's a truth to say the only thing I need to do relax is be with my family, wherever it is, sailboat beach. I don't care as long as they're there. That's amazing. Yeah. And I wish I could come up with something better and more creative, but it's just, uh, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta take a page from his playbook because it's a very wise playbook. So same sort of thing. You know, I we talked about the pandemic early and it's probably a nice way to close the show. You know, in the pandemic, everybody hunkered down and we were sort of inwardly focused. And I think, you know, right now when I'm not inwardly focused on my career and the writing and the storytelling and, and doing films and televisions with Jeff, what I say is, you know, it's family time and let's focus on rekindling those relationships with our extended family and, and friends out there in the world. So um, that's what we, we do the same thing. Uh, we're trying to travel and do outreach and, and get together with with uh, friends and family. Hmm. Brian, I do have to ask you, what is your favorite submarine movie? My favorite is The Hunt for October. It is The Hunt for yeah. October. Okay. Yeah. I I, I was going to ask if it was Crimson Tide, but I I just had to ask. Well, Crimson Tide is is excellent, but you know I'm a sucker for the Cold War. You know I have I've sort of always had this fascination with Russia, and I, I wouldn't call myself a Russophile. Like I don't speak Russian. I, I, but I'm fascinated. They have very different mindset. I grew up during the Cold War, so I sort of programmed to maybe think about this idea of this, you know, this terrifying but also like seductively interesting enemy that's you know on the other side of the world that maybe thinks differently and is is pitted against us. So for me, 100% Red October. And Jeff, what is the best SEAL Team film? Oh, you know, the most of the ones that I really resonate with me are the ones that are not not fictional. So, uh, you know, Lone Survivor was incredible. Um, and of course, the the Chris Kyle um, biopic, um, American Sniper, absolutely amazing. I think American Sniper, I can tell you there were there were scenes in that film where I was like, dude, I swear to you, if they would pan the camera just to the right, you would see the glass factory out by the like it was I don't know how they did it because I know they didn't film it in Ramadi, but they so captured the the uh, the relationships and the character of those men uh, that it was it was very 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 powerful. So I would say those are probably my top two. There haven't been any really great fiction ones that I can think of. The only one that I remember um, it wasn't filmed on my boat. It was filmed on my sister ship, the Truman. It was Tears of the Sun. Oh, and- that was good. They flew the they flew the crew onto the ship, and my I had a couple of buddies of mine who were on the boat, and the entire crew threw up on the cod, and Bruce Willis, who's this great action star, walking off the cod with vomit down his <laughs> jumpsuit. <laughs> so, uh, there was no photographs that exist of it, but they said it was one of the fa- it said everybody who was on the flight. They said it was one of the funniest things of this action hero looking green in the face. Would just vomit just down his jumpsuit. <laughs> this is so great. But that movie is, I do watch that movie on the regular. It is one of my favorite films, Tears of the Sun. That is a great, great CLT movie. But Lone Survivor is a great one. Uh, I haven't seen American Sniper in a long time, but it is a good film. Yeah, yeah. it is a good one. It is. All right. So, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? 
Easiest way is just go to the website. It's uh, andrews-wilson.com and everything you need is there. We do have a, we have a newsletter. I will, I'm just going to throw this out as a pitch. There's a lot of newsletters out there that you're sorry that you signed up for. We're not, <laughs> we're not those guys. If you get a newsletter from us, it's because we got something to tell you a new, a new book coming out, a show that we've just signed up for or whatever. So we won't spam you. We don't sell your data or anything like that. Uh, but you go to andrews-wilson.com. All our books are there. All our film and TV projects are there. Links to buy the books are there. There's one of my favorite things. We have a fan page where fans, not, not only do they get to share pictures with us so we can post them on the website, but then they start to interact with each other. Like we built this little family, this little community of Andrews and Wilson readers out there. Uh, so pretty much anything you need to know about what we got going on is right there on the website. All right, Brian, Jeff, I, I could keep talking to you guys for hours, but I have to wrap this up. I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of earth? And either one of you can go first. Uh, my, mine is, and I, and I, I, I feel this every day. Uh, just, just be good to each other. You know, we're all out here. Uh, life is a slog. Right. Uh, who is it, Jeff, that says none of us are getting out of this alive? Right. None of us are getting out of this alive. So, you know, while you're here, let's try to be good to each other. Be be better person than you were the day before, because, um, you know, you never know what the person that you run into, what sort of misery or suffering that they're dealing with in their life. And so that's something I've been thinking a lot about. So that's my that's my advice. Yeah, that's it's similar. I'll, I'll actually just play riff on the exact same thing. And that is, you know, our country and our world has become so divided. I would ask everyone to just try to remember that 90% of what that guy that you think you hate is about is the same stuff you're about. We keep hating each other for these one or 2% of things that we disagree on, but we're all in this together, like Brian said. And there's so much more that, that brings us together, and especially in this country. We are united as Americans, and those of us that have traveled the world, like like you have, Derek, and like we've had the opportunity to do, and seen both some amazing places, but also some serious suck, we appreciate it at a level that's different. And I think that's why it's so hard for guys like us. We look at it like, you're fighting about this. Like, I agree with you on this and you on this, but who gives a shit? Like, it's not worth like beating each other up about. Just remember what brings us together is far, far more common and more important than the things that separate us. I agree. That's beautifully said. All right, Brian, Jeff, I have been looking forward to this interview since the moment I first got introduced to the two of you and you have not let me down in any way, shape or form <laughs> from, from one sailor to another. Congratulations on all your success. Thanks for coming on the show today and please let's do this again. Okay. Oh, hundred percent. Anytime, anytime. Yes. This was an awesome interview. You gave a great interview, Derek. Thank you. Thank you. And just like that, Devall Nation, we come to the end of episode 196. I want to thank Brian and Jeff for taking the time out of their day to come on the show and speak with me. I did mean it when I said that that interview could easily have gone on for another hour or so with little effort. We were just that engrossed in the conversation. Gentlemen, you are both welcome back on my show anytime. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. 
Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there with everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner of the left says merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, we want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, please go and check out Brian and Jeff's website, www.andrews-wilson.com and see the plethora of books that they have to offer on there. I really cannot wait to check out the new Jack Ryan book. I also cannot wait to see what becomes of their books when they become TV shows and or films. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds very exciting to me. No star, God bless. And see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.